I was hard pressed to name it. It was an underlying syndrome of sorts that permeates my very being. It operates like a drone, a dull droning sound, always present, that most of the time is drowned out by my higher pitches of optimism and hope. I now know it to be black fatigue. This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Group podcast for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. My name is Mary Frances Winters, and I will be your host for this series where we will explore the many layers of Black fatigue. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Inclusion Solution Live. I have the honor and the pleasure today of talking with my dear friend and colleague and sister girl, all of those kind of names, Shavara Oren. She is an amazing, amazing practitioner, an amazing person. Um, she just brings so much to the world. And it is my honor and pleasure to be able to uh, work with this wonderful person, this wonderful woman on a regular basis. So we are honored today. You are all are in for a treat. So if you haven't listened to any of the other po- podcasts that I've done on Black Fatigue, please listen to this one. Shavara, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to be with me today and to talk with me about your Black Fatigue. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited. And I sent all of, all of what you just said, those powerful, beautiful words right back to you. So thank you. Thank you. Well, tell, tell us, tell everybody about who you are. Just share your journey with us. Um, you know, share who you, who you are, who you be, uh, who you was, and who you are not anymore, who you are now. And yeah, just, just tell us about you. It's a constant evolution, right? So th- thank you for that question. And, you know, sometimes when I'm in, in session with clients, I'll ask them, we meet people that we don't know. And there are a couple of things that we first ask. And we usually ask, so what's your name? And then we ask, where are you from? And I'm always struck by that question because I think that a more telling, more introspective question is, who are you from? Who are you from? And when I think about who I am from, I I also think about the context of our American history and our story, especially on this day, as we are celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day, right? Who are we from? We are all from the land that belonged to and still belongs to indigenous people. And I am daughter descendant of immigrant and enslaved. And when I also think about the times that we're in now and who we are from in our America at this moment, we are either from indigenous people, we are either from immigrants or we are from enslaved people. And I am from immigrant and enslaved people. I am the great granddaughter of Samuel Rutsky who set sail on the St. Paul from Kiev, Russia in 1902. I'm the great granddaughter of Burl Bevel, born on a cotton plantation in Alabama into enslavement and bondage. Um, I'm the daughter of Sue Oren. You've not met my mom really in person, but I know you know her in spirit because I talk about her often, a white Jewish civil rights, human rights, anti-Vietnam War, anti-apartheid activist. I'm the daughter of James Bevel, a civil rights um, genius 
one of the inner circle of Dr. King behind many of the major strategies of the civil rights movement. I'm a mother, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual um, violence, of incest specifically. And it's interesting, I love when you said like who you be, who you becoming, because I, I am in constant evolution and I challenge myself every single day to really interrogate not just who I'm from, but how I'm living in this moment, how I'm showing up as Shabara, um, as a human being, as a mother, as a daughter, as a sister, as an auntie, as a sister friend to you. So yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much um, for that. Um, your history and, and you know who you are from uh, is really powerful. It really is powerful. So tell me what you think your father would be doing right now if he were still with, if, if he were still with us and he was still active in the, the struggle, how would he be addressing and dealing with this moment in time that we're finding ourselves in right now? You know, it's so interesting that you asked that, Mary Frances. My father died um, quite a few years ago, about 12 years ago now. And you and I talked about this. It was tumultuous. It was not, um, it's complex. My relationship with my father is complicated and I believe in transparency. So for those of you out there, you're gonna get some real transparency today. Um, I, am, I am very thankful for the legacy that, that I hold and thinking about we are three weeks out from an election. My father was the first to call for the march from Selma to Montgomery. He's considered the father of the voting rights. And my father's also the perpetrator of my incest. And so I've spent a long time, many, many years grappling with how to honor his legacy and hold him accountable. And one of the things I think about all the time, despite the fact that, yes, that's also part of my legacy and history, um, that when he died, I don't have opportunity to be engaged in conversation with him about the work. I think about that often that if he were here, you know, what I'd most want to talk to him about is where our work intersects. I'd like to tell him, you know, about my white and woke campaign and say, hey, this is the way that I am engaging white people in the work around dismantling, disrupting white supremacy, white supremacy culture, racism, and talk to me about how you did this. I've read his writings. I talked to people who worked with him and I really, I appreciate this question because I, I miss not having that opportunity to really sit and strategize. He was radical, um, so much so that people like Andy Young and Dr. King and John Lewis and C.T. Vivian um, referred to him you know, like as an insane man. I mean, when you read about him, he was so radical. It, it certainly took someone very radical to say, I'm gonna take eight and nine and 12 year old children and place them on the street in front of police officers with hoses and police dogs, right? And so I think that his approach to what's happening now would, would, be, would be radical. And so, so much so radical to the extent of, I will lay down my life for this movement, right? Which so many people did, whether they walked into a barrage of bullets or or clan thinking I'm going to lay my life down, but kind of deep inside that I'm willing to die for what I believe in. 
he was a tactician. So I would imagine that he would be very interested in strategy around policies that we see right now being threatened. I mean, today we've got this Supreme Court hearing going on. He was a grassroots organizer. So I would imagine he'd be right out front with Black Lives Matter, um, the people who are doing that movement. He was also intersectional in his thinking. And so when I think about the intersection of the various people who are doing this work, I live in South Florida. And so when I think about the voices of, of Caribbean people and how they are navigating this moment, the um, voices of Latinx, Hispanic, Latino, Latina people. Um, yeah. What, and what did you what I was gonna say? What I think is I would love <laughs> to be in collaboration with him, you know, in this moment doing this work. So what did you learn from him that informs your work? Well, you know, so I I wasn't raised with him in that way. Like he wasn't a constant presence. I have learned a lot through his um, and I've had conversations with him about his work prior to him him dying. Um and I've read a lot of his writings. And I don't, our approaches, I don't believe are necessarily, they're not exactly the same. Um, I think there are some aspects of intersectionality, for example, that I think about and in my work show up more deeply than in his work. He was very focused on race. I'm living at the intersection when I think about my work of gender parity, racial equity, LGBTQ equality. And there certainly was a blind spot for him as it related to being part of the patriarchy and yet leading a civil rights movement that oftentimes left women out or diminished them or minimized them, right? And so I think that along those lines, we would have not so much conflict. I think there'd be opportunity for some growth and some learning. Because when I think about the work that he did, and not just him, the civil rights movement, and many of them, um, Andy Young and John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and all of them, when you talk to women of the movement, you know, they were not lifted up. Their voice, in the same way that we talk about Black women now, um, really struggling, what we just saw with Kamala Harris and the way that she was silenced, having to say, I am speaking. Yeah. And, you know, the women of the movement, many of them who I've spoken with, they, they had to say that with those men. I am speaking. I have strategy. I am here to do the work, too, alongside you, not relegated to being behind. Yeah. yeah. So how would, how would you describe, um, if somebody asks you, so what does Shabara Oren do in this work? What, what, what do you do? What are your goals? Um, and how do you, how do you uh, foster change? Thank you for that. Um, I spend much of my time, and, and I'm excited to say this, working with you. So <laughs> um, we, we, we are collaborators and co-conspirators in this work. And most of my work, right now is in corporate spaces, which has its, um, its opportunities and it also has extraordinary challenges, particularly right now as we think about the socio-political landscape 
through which we are living. And so I spend much of my time helping to facilitate dialogue around courageous conversations, a lot of the work that you've laid the groundwork for, how do you have bold, inclusive conversations, bringing people to a place of understanding. Um, a goal for me, a personal goal as a practitioner, as a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, is that when a conversation has ended, and I mean in a client space, that everyone walks away whole. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily agreeing, right? Because understanding is not agreement. Understanding is just that. It's saying that I am coming to a place of understanding and not just understanding you, but I am coming to a place of understanding myself. And so my goal always is, yes, I want people to listen to what I'm saying and I want them to hear the contextual history that we are, are laying out so that they better understand where we're going from the perspective of where we've been. But what I mostly want them to do is interrogate these deep held narratives. Something that I've been challenging my clients with lately, and I actually did it in practice, Mary Frances, um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was hard because this introspection is really difficult. I, I use sometimes, and we use too, um, the Winters Group, Chimamanda Adichie's, um, a clip of the danger of a single story, right? And there's, when I think about this danger of a single story, the danger of a stereotype is not that it's untrue, but that it's incomplete. Hmm. I've been asking clients lately to think about not just the narrative that they hold, but ask themselves the question, does this narrative no longer serve me? What's the source of the narrative? And if the source of the narrative is, say, a living being, is it possible to go back to the source of the narrative and say, not in anger, not in confrontation, but to, to say to the, the source of the narrative, this narrative that I've held for decades, you gave me this narrative. It's harmed me. It's caused me harm. And I want to give it back. I don't know what you want to do with it, but this narrative <laughs> no longer serves me. And then I've been asking them to do something deeper than that. If this narrative that you've held for such a long time, you know it's caused you harm, have you caused harm with the narrative that you've held? And if the source of the harm that you've caused is still present, are you able to go to that source and apologize and reconcile? And that is truly, yeah, that is truly what it is, right? The reconciliation and the healing, right? I mean, you do that so well, Shavar, because it is about healing, isn't it? Mary Frances, it's almost as though I'm about to cry. Like you just set me up for what I was, I'm about to tell you. So I have two sons. And I think that as practitioners in this work, we can't just, you know, have the academic credentials. We can't just have the wide range of, corporate clients. I do a lot of strategy work too with clients and that's important, but we also have to take into account our lived experience and we have to model the work. We have to model it. And you and I both know that's challenging. Some of the work that you, Brittany Harris and I have been doing is around decolonizing DEI, really looking at our own sector and asking the deep question and interrogating whether we are complicit in upholding systems of inequity. So I'm constantly challenging myself. Shavara, are you complicit in upholding systems of inequity, not just for other people, but for yourself? I have two sons. 
And my oldest son is 31. And I met his father when I was a young girl. I was 16. And it was a horrible relationship. It was, it was emotionally violent. It was sexually violent. It was physically violent. And two weeks ago, I called his father. We don't talk often. We're, we're, I, I would say we're friends. Um, we didn't co-parent. I raised my son by myself until I got married. And I called him to tell him that I had held on to a narrative about myself of being worth, not worthy, around worthiness. And some of that had to do with being in relationship, right? And so I was sharing with him about this and I talked to him first. I put into context what I do with clients because I didn't want him to feel as though I were attacking him. But this is the work, this is the healing, especially as black people. Yes, we are healing from white supremacy and racism, but we are also healing from harm perpetrated by our own communities. And at the very end of the conversation, he asked me, he said, well, I, I really hope that someday you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. I said, oh, that's not why I called. I already have. That's the healing work, right? That's the healing work and it is difficult work. It is difficult work and it can take us to a place of fatigue. Yeah. If we don't recognize what's going on and, and what you also do so well is being so in tune with the mind, with the body, you know, with the spirit, you know, where, you know, how are you entering the space? What are you, what are you feeling right, right now? And that's hard. That's hard in the corporate world, isn't it? Because there are corporate folks sometimes, <laughs> they, they just get, just tell me what to do. Give me the five steps, you know, and right. they don't want to do the, um, the introspective work, which is so, it's, it's essential to our work. Is, is it not? It, it is essential. I'm reading a book right now, actually, My Grandmother's Hands, right? Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. And, and what's so striking and extraordinary about this, this book, and the, the writer is a healer. He's a, mm -hmm. he's a healer. And he, he's a therapist, like not a philosopher or a literary stylist, but he's a healer. And he talks about this trauma that's passed through families by abuse, through unsafe structures, institutions, cultural norms, and, and showing up in our genes. And what does it mean to, to heal the body? And he says that the reason we've not been able to move through any of this is because we've been trying to do it simply only through cognitive, right? Cognitively, and, and that's the corporate, you know, let's talk about the, um, the corporate case for diversity. Let's talk about all the McKinsey studies and all that data, all the information that we have. He says this trauma is living in our bodies and until we are able to heal our bodies, we will not heal our minds, right? We will not be able to, we can't articulate through it. We can't write a white paper on it. We have to really sit with it and think about how it's showing up the generational trauma that comes from our ancestors, the trauma that we've experienced. I grew, I, the, the ACEs, um, the ACEs study, the, um, the childhood trauma, right? That as a child, this childhood trauma that you've experienced shows up in your body. It's on, on a scale of one to 10. I'm an eight out of 10, an eight out of 10. And when I think about all of that trauma, some inflicted by the constructs of white supremacy, some 
inflicted because of black community, some inflicted because I grew up in abject poverty and the way that we criminalize poverty and the way that I internalized being in poverty. And so I've been finding this book really valuable, but to your point, you know, I show up in sessions, well, not now because we're all in virtual space. So I do burn sage on, <laughs> on Zoom sessions, but I would show up in corporate spaces with lavender oil. And I know you do. Middle-aged white men are getting up from their table or chair, coming up to the front, and they're rubbing on lavender oil. The room smells like a spa. And I know that they're probably thinking, I just don't know about this. And it's because, I, you know, when I think about how we um, often compartmentalize and we don't intentionally integrate all of who we we are, right? Our, our spirit, our mind, our bodies. And it is, it's, it is, I think, critical to this work. It, it really is. I'm reading um, My Grandmother's Hands as well. I wish I had read it before I wrote Black Fatigue, but I do have some parts in Black Fatigue where I talk about the trauma, not as eloquently as he talks about it, because I'm not a therapist. But I think, you know, in Black Fatigue, I did, I did try to I'm highlighting even for, and for black people as well, not just for, for, for what I'm hoping white people will read it, but for black people as well, because black people are telling me as they read the book that they didn't know, they didn't know the connection of their, their body um, responses and how those body responses related to the, the trauma, to, related to, to racial trauma or, you know, or, or other types of trauma that's um, correlated to, to racial trauma. Right. So um, it, it is, it is a lot. And, and I'm glad that, um, people are now in the corporate world embracing this new way of being and transforming that's not just cognitive. What I'd like you to talk a little bit about, and we've talked about this before, is um, navigating the world as a biracial you know, person. I know we've talked about um, how the communities each can be not so welcoming um, to, to you in, in the past. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a loaded one. <laughs> and it's funny because, um, you know, <laughs> just recently in our nation, we had an instance, um, again, where a white person was pretending to be black, the professor. Yes, yes, yes. To be black. And one of the things that happened, unlike several years ago when Rachel Dolezal was on the scene and it's become a verb, right? Dolezaling. Um, right. Even a phrase that we've <laughs> into, kind of into, into, into our paradigm. When this latest incident happened, something occurred that was completely unexpected for me. Because of the, the trauma that she inflicted, not just on the academic community, people, black people, who had stood with her, who had vouched for her, who had you know, co-authored and worked and written with her. There was so much pain in the black community and you were, you were, I was seeing it on social media from some colleagues. I didn't know her, but we actually mm -hmm. shared, you know, just through social media threads, we shared some colleagues, some, some um, friends. And I was watching the pain of what she did, this dishonesty, um, this violation, of our blackness. And at the same time, all of a sudden, and I did not see this happen several years ago with, with the other incident, all of a sudden, 
black people decided they were policing blackness. And there were many threads that I saw where people who were biracial were being called out. I have always identified as a black woman, as a black girl. And in fact, the reason I identify as a black girl, as a black woman is because of my white mother. She said to me when I was a little girl, I remember I was maybe six and she said, you know, you can choose identity. You understand in theory, these two aspects of family and the world will view you as non-white. And with that comes a set of circumstances and experience that I as a white Jewish woman will never know. That same week, she also told us, um, me and my little sister, that she believed that there would be a race war. We would identify as black. We would stand up as black women to slay her and she was willing to die, to lay her white body down in death for our black freedom and liberation. That's something real heavy for a six-year-old to try to process. It's heavy for me now, decades later, to even think about it because I believe that's where we are in this moment. This idea that I know when I was a little girl that you know the question was, it was much more unsophisticated. Was you mixed or what are you, right? That was always the question. And there was this need for other people to make you choose sides. Are you black or are you white? I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I moved there when I was five. And something they used to do, the way they would assess race, they would say all the black kids stand up. And the teacher would have you stand up and she would point her finger and she would count. Now all the white students. Now if anyone was Asian or something else, they were just out of luck. They had to be black or white. There was nothing else. My friends would nudge me and say, stand up twice, stand up twice. What I started thinking about right after George Floyd was murdered, I was doing some work with interracial couples who were really grappling with his murder and how it was showing up in their own relationships. That as a child, if you ask a biracial child to choose, which means then you are half of something, how could you ever be whole, right? And I started thinking more deeply about this, that I am 100% black and I am 100% Jewish, half of me, does not mourn when a synagogue is attacked. Half of me did not mourn when George Floyd was murdered. And when I started seeing on social media, all this, um, this rhetoric around, you know, for those of you who do not have two black parents and two black grandparents and two black great grandparents, you're biracial, do not claim blackness. I saw so many threads. I've always claimed blackness and it was, it was painful. And I recognize that my black experience, experience is white adjacent, right? I have privilege because of my proximity to whiteness and my black experience is not the same black experience as my black Barry Hughes sisters. And I still have a valid black experience. And so the complexity of that for me has been really, really, really challenging. And one of the things that I've been using to really help me think through this, particularly with other black women, women who identify as black who are also biracial, specifically with one black and one white parent, because that means something different in America, right? As I started thinking about the work of, of Dr. Maria Root, and she created this Bill of Rights for racially mixed people. 
And a couple of them are, I have the right not to justify my existence in this world. I have the right not to justify my ethnic legitimacy. I have the right not to be responsible for people's discomfort with my physical ambiguity. She talks about having the right to identify yourself differently than strangers expect you to, differently than how your parents expect you to, or how your siblings identify. And then she says one that, that always strikes me and struck me back when, when um, Tiger Woods coined his own <laughs> word of being. She says, I have the right to create a vocabulary to communicate about being multiracial. And when he did that, and he said, I'm Kablan Asia, black people attacked him. White people attacked him too, but what I remember were the voices of black people, like how dare you, right? And so it's, it's a, the conversation is fraught with a lot of challenge for me. I very rarely talk about being biracial. I'm not in spaces often with other biracial people, specifically biracial women, and it creates such a, a conundrum in black community because of white supremacy culture, because of colorism, right? And so it's not a comfortable, it's actually a very uncomfortable conversation for me. And a few weeks ago, when all of that surfaced, it was probably one of the first times that I was engaging with much more frequency in conversation with both black people who identify as black with two black parents and black people who identify as black with one black parent and a parent of, a, of another race. Wow, this is um, really, um, it's, it's complex. And so how does this then, how has this um, impacted and influenced what I call, you know, black fatigue? Where, where, does, where, where does your black fatigue um, emanate? How, how does it show up for you? And then how do you, how do you manage it, <laughs> get rid of it, <laughs> so that you maintain who you are, this beautiful light that is always so um, uplifting with an aura of positivity and an aura of joy? You know, how do you, how do you work through all of the complexities? Yeah, thank you for that, Mary Frances. And thank you for this, the gift of this book, you know, putting into words what so many of us as Black people, um, particularly Black people, um, in America, black people around the globe, but we have a, a unique experience as folks from the African diaspora who are also American. And black fatigue for me shows up in a wide range of ways. It shows up um, with the pressure and just the, the stress and the horror and the um, pain of white supremacy culture. And black fatigue shows up for me also as patriarchy within our own black community. Like I, you know, black women, we are at this intersection. Um, and I'm just talking about being a, a black woman who is cisgendered and able-bodied, right? So when I think about black women who have other identities, other aspects of their identity, it's even heavier. And just this weekend, um, not that every single day black fatigue is not like weighing heavy. I, I'm a pacifist and have been since before I could even spell the word. And several weeks ago, I decided I didn't feel safe enough in America to not at least get more informed about owning a firearm. And so I did what I always do. I did some research. I 
called my sister. Turns out she was having similar thoughts. So we decided we would go to firearm training and consider being firearm owners. So this weekend, this Saturday, we went to a, a training facility and um, we were trained by a white supremacist. And I didn't know that going into it. The training um, was filled with racist propaganda and um, right-wing rhetoric. The trainer said that race had no place in the Zimmerman shooting, um, referring to um, Trayvon Martin as a man, right? He talked about how uh, the McClowskis, um, they should have been defending because the riots of criminal black people who should have been already in jail were coming through their neighborhood. I got misidentified as a white woman on a document in this training class by one of the instructors who didn't ask me my race, but put a big W on a form. And as we sat through this three hour session, me as a diversity, equity and inclusion practitioner, my sister as a civil rights and labor and employment attorney who works for a very large civil rights organization now, we said nothing that would indicate how we were showing up in that moment. And, and we kept glancing at each other, the whole class. And when we walked out, we had both taken copious notes, pages and pages of notes. We both almost simultaneously said that we somehow felt complicit in a system. And I felt so heavy. I felt traumatized coming out of this session. And then, in true spirit of being daughter descendant of our mama and our daddy, we talked about we need to contact the um, you know, agricultural commission and talk to the owner. And before we left the room, my sister wrote an email to the trainer asking if he perhaps would sit down in conversation with the two of us for some critical feedback and some you know, in-depth conversation about what we had just experienced. And so that to answer your question, so here's this trauma. And then one of the ways that we chose to work through it was how do we then engage someone who is so, when I, who, is, who is almost like polar opposite probably in, in all the, in ideology and all the ways that we think about race and justice and even, even um, the second amendment, right? So how, how to hold space you know, how do you, in the midst of trauma, think about still holding space and grace, perhaps for the person who traumatized you? Um, and then, you know, I, I practice a lot of self-care. I'm here in South Florida, so I go to the ocean every morning for sunrise with crystals and lavender and a Tibetan singing bowl. And I decided because of, you know, reading your book, spending so much time with you talking about Black fatigue, I've gotten exceptionally good at meditation and self-care in that way. You know what was missing? Joy. Joy was missing from my life. And so I've taken up kayaking every weekend for almost three months now because what was missing was joy. And I think the self-care that we tend to think about practicing is 
how do we lower our heart rate that's pulsing and how do we, you know, the pounding that's in our head and, and the tremor that's in our hands. And so we, we want to bring it down so that we can meditate. And then we're missing the joy and the joy is the excitement and the power and the vibrancy. And so I've decided I needed some counterbalance to my meditative practice with practice that was more invigorating. So I, I'm not there yet. You, you are at a higher level of enlightenment than I am because I don't think I would have been able to sit through that um, firearm training without rage occurring. With, I, I don't, I just don't think I would have been able to do it. I, 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 I too am a pacifist. So I, I probably, I haven't gotten to the point where I even <laughs> want to go to the firearms training. However, several of my friends, including you, um, have said that they are really, really fearful about where we are in this country right now, that they fear for their safety. Um, and, and they are doing the same thing. They are, they are, you know, getting armed yeah. uh, or, or at least getting training. So, you know, right. They don't, I don't know that any of my friends have actually bought a firearm yet. They may not tell me because, yeah. Right, because, so, right. I'm not going to tell you either. I'm, I'm like, keep that to myself. But no, yeah, I, you're like, keep that to yourself. I, you know, no, I did. I, I was so angry. And what I was mostly angry about is all of this misinformation, the erroneous legal information that I know my sister's heart must have been ready to explode through her chest because she's an attorney. At one point... I remember I took notes and one of the things that he said, and this really, this really, really struck me. This really struck me. He said that an attorney's job is to find something to exploit so that you can get off from being charged with murder in a stand your ground case. And I'm thinking, no, when all the research shows, right, that black folks suffer with stand these stand your right it just it was mind-boggling but what made me so angry and so sad was there are thousands of people who are sitting in classes just like this <laughs> black and white people and other folks of other races too and it wasn't just misinformation it was information that was so dangerous that could get us killed could get black folks killed yeah, it's um, so thank you for sharing that. This is going to be really, really um, powerful. So, you know, I would say to um, th those who are listening, um, I'm not sure that we're advocating that you go out and uh, get training for firearms. However, we're probably advocating that, that you think about ways to keep yourself safe because we are living in unprecedented, you know, times. The what happened to the Michigan governor you know, um, last week, and then, you know, so, so many more. I mean, it just seems like every day there's, there, there's something else. And there is um, a organized effort yeah. to dismantle uh, everything that we have been working for for over 400 years relative to justice and equity, the things that your father and your mother you know, uh, fought for in the, you know, in the 60s and all of the work that we continue to do. So it, it is fatiguing uh, because we have to continue to, we make, you know, perhaps two steps forward, or at least we think we have, and then it's, you know, three steps backwards. And so that's part of what is so fatiguing. But Shavara, um, it has been so uplifting to hear how you um, take care of yourself um, you're going to the ocean every morning. And I know that everybody, I live in Charlotte, so I can't go to the ocean every morning. But you send me beautiful pictures of the ocean, which um, inspire me. So I really, uh, I really enjoy that. But 
what can you say to um, the listeners if they're saying, well, you know, gee, I, I don't have that privilege of going to the ocean. I don't have that privilege of, of meditating. I have, you know, I have three jobs and four kids and yeah. I'm, you know, underpaid and I'm barely able to, you know, keep my head above water. How do I get my rest? What would you, what would you recommend? Thank you for that. And I think that it's really important, right, to lift that up. There's privilege and being able to take care of ourselves. I grew up in abject poverty, standing in food stamp lines, walking to free healthcare clinics, eating government subsidized food on a two burner hot plate. And there was never a moment that there wasn't trauma and just the struggle to live, whether the lights were gonna be on and there was gonna be a, a can of, of you know weird corn hash from the government for us to eat at night. And when I was a, um, a young single parent, one, and I didn't, I was working two part-time low-wage jobs. I was in college. And I remember creating space in my small apartment with my two small sons so that they would have a moment to meditate. And before they would go to school in the morning, I would say, we sat in a little circle, it's just the three of us. And I would say, breathe in all that is powerful. And I would give them and then breathe out like all that will keep you from whatever goals you have that you're gonna be setting today. And so I think that even if we don't have an ocean, we can have a stick of incense. Even if we don't have a stick of incense, we can have a meditation or a prayer that we say, right? And what I do think is important is setting intentionality around, I have to take care of myself because if we do not take care of ourselves, there is no way not just as practitioners and as in this in this work, but as black people, we can't take care of our families. We can't take we can't take care of our partners, our husbands, our wives, our spouses, our children, our elders. We we have to take care of ourselves. And I think that we have to decide that it is a non-negotiable. Like for me, it is a non-negotiable. It is. And it wasn't always that way because I was that person always doing, always going, feeling as though I didn't even have the right to take a moment to breathe. But even if you take a one moment just to breathe out all that infiltrates us in this world, it is, it's worth it. And I don't know how we as Black people move through if we aren't more conscious. And I think about like even our ancestors chanting, drumming, swaying, all of the ways that we release the tension of the world, all the ways that we release black fatigue. And, and I also think that, you know, in this moment, we as black people need to hold space for our healing and white people too, for white people who have decided that they're gonna be in solidarity with us. This work is heavy and hard. There's risk associated with it. So you need to breathe too. Like this, right. Just, right? this isn't just about, you know, um, I think about my mama, you know, she at 23 was the lead organizer of the 100,000 person march on the Pentagon in opposition to the Vietnam War. She's in her seventies now, and that's five decades of the work. It, now she doesn't have black fatigue, but there is fatigue in doing the same work. And so trying to figure out how all of us, because this polarization that you were just referring to, this concerted effort 
to dismantle all of this work, it further divides and, and polarizes us. And I, I think the other thing that, that keeps me grounded and, and keeps me filled with this joy is that I believe no matter what, and I know there are people out there who are not gonna agree with this, but I believe no matter what, there is always common ground. There is something, there is, there is an aspect of our humanity. I, I, I just, I really believe this. I also believe that until we take our last breath, it's possible to change. And so that's what also keeps me grounded and moving forward in this work because the, the, um, the discouragement, if we get discouraged, I have a mentor, Rodney Hurst, who's in his 70s, and he um, was a, the youth leader of the NAACP in Jacksonville, Florida. And he says to me often, he says, child, you can get tired, but don't you dare get weary, is what he says to me. I think that is a wonderful place for us to end this, this conversation that I knew would be so amazing. Um, you know, Black Fatigue sounds like a heavy title. Uh, in the book, however, I talk a lot about how to create Black joy. And a lot of the ideas that I have come from um, Shavara, who has inspired me uh, with that. We talk about the NAP ministry in the, in the mm. book. We talk about rest is resistance um, you know, in, in the book. And so the need to really take care of ourselves um, so that we can heal our mind, bodies, and spirits, so that we stay whole, so that we can do the work. Shavara, thank you again for just being who you are, what you are, and I, I wanted your voice to be on this podcast because it's gonna help so many people. This is the Inclusion Solution Live. I'm Mary Frances Winters, President and CEO of the Winters Group, and we are promoting the book, Black Fatigue, but we are also promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice every day, all day long. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this My Black Fatigue series on the Inclusion Solution Live. If you would like to share your comments and personal stories based on the series, use hashtag MyBlackFatigue on social media. And for podcast updates as well as resources, Follow us at The Winters Group. Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit is now available on Amazon, Bookshop, IndieBound, Barrett Kohler, and Barnes & Noble.